Getting hitched? There's a podcast for that, and you're listening to it. The Save the Date Wedding Podcast, the number one podcast about all things wedding-y. I'm so delighted to have my guest, a return guest on the show, because last time she was on, I learned a lot, and I know you learned a lot because I got lots of emails about it, and it's one of my best rating episodes. I don't talk about my ratings very much, but I listen when you when you speak. You last heard Ginger Dean on episode 61. It was entitled, Manage Your Moolah, Girls Just Want to Have Funds, and that is Ginger's website. It's a fantastic resource for learning all about, well, as she says, turning women from hot mess to a financial success. Men and women, I would say, Ginger. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm a great admirer of your website and I love the ethos and your uh, energy that you put into helping people, I would say in a very Alicia term, get their shit together when it comes to their cash. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I know it. you wouldn't. I mean, it's probably not going to be on the front page. Alicia says, get your shit together with Ginger. But- <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? Sometimes that's what we need, right? Sometimes yes. we need shocked into actions. So yes. Would- exactly. Yeah. You've got to just go, listen, guys, come on. Let's get serious. Things could be a lot easier if you take my advice. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought this would be a good opportunity to get you back on the show, talk a little bit more about what we spoke about in last episode, about finding a balance when it comes to bringing two different financial ideals together, because that's really a big part of a relationship. And a lot of people don't like to talk about money. So I thought today this would be a really good chance to just bring that back up, try and find a bit of a balance when it comes to talking about cash. It's hard to talk about money though, really, isn't it? It's it's not a natural thing for people to do. Yeah, I would say it's a pretty difficult topic for some people because you know for a lot of people you know money is power and if they don't have a lot of it then it's not something that they really want to talk about it because it means that they're not in a position of power you know we needed to eat sleep you know live our lives if you want to see how sensitive it is ask a woman how much money she makes and then look at the looks she might give you Mm. you know so It isn't something that comes easy for a lot of people. It's something I think comes right back to childhood and how we were raised about the the situations we're in as kids and watching our parents deal with money. I think that's got a huge part to play in it. Oh, yeah, I definitely. Then that's what we call our money story. You know, Mm. how we were raised to believe our beliefs about money, which were um, essentially given to us from a young age. So if you saw if you always saw your parents struggling, you know, to put pennies together to put dinner on the table, then you're either going to grow up fearing that you'll never have enough or that you have to hoard money in order to keep it. And neither are very healthy. And so, yeah, I do agree that it comes a lot from childhood and we often don't see it until we get into relationships and we have someone else mirroring back our issues to us. Do you think like the money story, that's such a great way to just sum it all up because I think, you know, until you are speaking openly with someone about it, you might not even really realize that that's actually what's affected you for, I don't know, your adult life. I I think it's really interesting to actually bring that up and have that discussion. Well, yeah, I totally agree because, I mean, when you're in relationship with another person, then you, I mean, relationships are mirrors. And so that other person is able to show you the deficits in yourself where you might not be able to see because they're really blind spots. Um, You can also know if you have money issues if you're constantly in a feast or famine cycle. And that's pretty much where you have money one minute, 
and then you're broke right before a payday again. Mm. And so that's what we call feast or famine or just nothing ever changes. It just means that the same programming just keeps on repeating itself for you over and over again. And so that's how we know when we have money issues. I really love the idea that before you get married, and I know you talk a lot about this, about trying to get on the same page before you sign that document, before you become official, to actually be open and honest and get into the same sort of vibe when it comes to how you want to handle your money. And I think a lot of people avoid having those conversations because it's uncomfortable. As you said, their money stories may differ. They've got completely different ideas about how to handle finances, but it's actually one of the most important conversations you can have have in a relationship yes ma'am because i mean here in the states um you know 60 percent of people who got well 60 percent of people who got divorced cited money as the main issue mm. think about it you know yes a spender and a saver can live in harmony but if the if both of them don't know how to do that then it's not going to make for a really good union. And so it may be that one person got into a lot of debt or they brought a lot of debt into the marriage. Um, and then of course, financial troubles just permeates all, you know, every part of our life. And so if you don't know how to deal with those issues head on, or if you just weren't prepared, or maybe you just didn't know, maybe the person had a lot of debt that you just didn't know they had. Mm. And it was only until you receive a phone call from a debt collector or, you know, a notice to appear in court, because you're being sued, do some people really find out? And that can cause huge issues in a marriage. Oh my God, that would be horrific. And I'm sure a lot of people have been through it and have really only just started to figure out what the hell to do when they're actually at that stage. That'd be really scary. Ginger, I have a confession, I think, uh, that uh, <laughs> I need to share. I would call myself a financial optimist in the sense that I go, oh, it's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And my husband, Rich, is quite a sensible person. And uh, I love that we come together uh, and we, you know, balance each other out. But I also think even three years into our marriage that we still have issues where I'm going, oh, no, no, in six months time, everything will be fine. Whereas he's sort of going, no, 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 let's do the math. Let's sort it out. So I'm, you know, happy to wear that one and sort of say, I, uh, we are still trying to figure out how to find that balance. Um, it's difficult. Yeah. And it, like, even in your situation, I mean, it may, it may just take him, loosening up a little bit and it may make it may mean that you may also need to just sort of meet him in the middle yeah like maybe yeah. still have that laid-back attitude but then in your response still address his concerns like yes it'll be okay but okay so let's talk about the numbers so that we can make sure that it'll be okay yeah so i mean that's just that's just a little way that you can be able to connect with the other person because like a lot of times folks come together in disagreements and they're talking at each other and they're not actually listening to each other. And you have to actually listen to their request, not listen to the emotion. So many times we we respond back to the emotion that's being given as opposed to what's being said or requested of us. I'm so glad you mentioned emotion because I think a wedding is one of those it's a business it's a business situation it's a business deal that you are entering into with vendors and all these sort of contractors but so many people are so emotionally attached with these transactions it's pretty rare in besides probably buying a house there aren't many other transactions like that that we have in our lives that we are so connected with um and it's very difficult for some people to disconnect the emotion to how much money they're spending yeah, I mean, think about it. A lot of women have like these fairy tale ideas about mm. what, you know, what their wedding should look like. And I think it's great. Don't get me wrong. I, I totally have no problem because I mean, I know that 
you know, if, if money permits, I know how I'd like to get married in style the next time. And so, but if not, I'm totally okay with like a smaller venue or something like that. Yeah. You just have to be realistic. And then also just keep in mind, what are your future financial goals? You know, is it really realistic to spend $50,000, $80,000, $100,000 on a wedding on one day? How much are you actually spending on your marriage? There's the wedding and then there's the marriage. How much are you spending in um, premarital counseling and conferences and workshops to help you communicate so that the marriage oh, will last? Great point. So, I'm gonna guess. Yeah. I'm gonna guess a lot of people listening would go, "Uh, nothing. I'm spending no money no, doing that." The first time they see a therapist is when they have an issue, and yes. I can understand it. But at the same time, 80k on a wedding, when you you know when the two of you only make a hundred together, that's you know that's that's a bit much. It's mental, so, as the Brits would say. It's mental. Yeah. It's crazy. And they allow their emotions to drive the purchases. And so that's, and you know, I don't know if you saw this, but there was actually a study that came out. Um, maybe it was a couple, a few months ago that stated the more money you spent on your wedding is, was the less likely, yes. it was, it was a lesser likelihood that you were going to make it like not get divorced essentially. And so I thought that was, I thought that was, it was interesting because then I thought about it. Well, if you're spending lavish amounts on the wedding, really, how much are you spending on the marriage in and of itself? Like, yeah. really think that all the people that we know or that we've read about that spend so much on, they're really doing it for the outside appearance of, oh, my God, this is a fairy tale. It's a lovely day. And you have to ask yourself, well, I wonder how much they're really put focusing on the marriage itself as well. It's that keeping up with the Joneses sort of mentality that gets you into big trouble further in life as well not just with weddings it's the idea that you start off being those big sort of spendthrift couples and uh where is that going to get you it's going to get you into heaps of debt in the future yeah so there's nothing wrong with the desire itself it's more about really connecting to okay so what do i really need to do at this point in my life is it really realistic and is it really necessary to spend so much money because is the focus on the wedding or is the fo- does the focus really need to be on the marriage? And that's what so many people miss. But again, all we see in the media is, you know, fantastic weddings and we want the same thing and that's fine. But we have to maybe work towards it or just be in a position to do it instead of leveraging our credit and just getting into more and more debt um, just to be able to pay for that fabulous wedding. Yeah, I mean, I think we last time we talked about student debts and student loans and how much uh, of an advantage it could be if you could say, hey, I could knock 10 years off my student loans by spending oh. 10 grand less on my wedding. Surely that, you know, in a sane sort of state, you would go, of course I would do that. It'd be crazy not yeah, to. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, as a student loan debtor right here, I can totally connect to that. And so I know when I got married the first time, I know that it was just – it was so much, I mean, there was so much focus on the outside appearances. At the time I was in grad school, now that I'm out of grad school and I have that tuition bill, yeah, I totally agree. If I could t- if I could have taken half of what we spent on the wedding, which wasn't even all that lavish, I would, you know, it would, that, would, that would have been awesome financially for me. So I'm just, I would just urge a lot of people out there to really think outside of um, that one day. You could, there are ways to make it special without breaking the bank. Now, if you have it, fine, Great. spend it. Good idea. But 
Most of us are not in a position to be spending $100,000 on weddings. Slate had, Slate.com had a, uh, they've got a calculator and I'm going to link to it in the show notes. It's called a wedding calculator. What would I have if I invested instead? And it's a really interesting um, example that you could say, and I know a lot of people are planning their wedding now, but I did it. Uh, You put in the year that you got married and how much you spent on it. And then they work out if you'd invested the money just straight. I'm using air quotes in safe investments how much money you could have made with the money you spent on your wedding and that's actually a bit of an eye-opener to see that and go oh my gosh a lot of people just think oh the venue the dress the tux catering they don't really think about all the ancillary expenses that are Mm. really to the wedding and it adds up so i mean again it doesn't mean that you have to go to the justice of the peace though i don't um I don't knock anyone that does go to the Justice of Peace here in the States. But if you want to do something really smaller and intimate, that's totally possible. But, you know, again, a lot of folks are just focused on the extra, like the grand ballroom style weddings. So, but again, if you have it, you have it. And that's great. But some of us listening to this podcast, we probably don't. So that's, you know, that's really who we're targeting. (laughs) (laughs) I always come back and I don't know if I've mentioned this before. My, um, Rich, like when I first met him, he was working, uh, he's an architect now, but he was working in banking, completely changed careers. But I remember he worked for a company that did car loans. And he, one of the things he sort of realized in the first couple of months of working there was how many people looking at the cost of car loans and what people were borrowing, the people that were the ones getting loans to buy a Porsche or a really expensive sort of European showy, you know, car that you you buy because you want to look flashy. These are the people that are getting almost like 95% loans on these cars. So it really woke us up to the fact that the people that you see driving these expensive cars and wearing all the flashy shit and carrying the handbags and all that stuff, a lot of these people are, are people that don't have the cash. They're just borrowing money to look that way. And, you know, it really made me it, like it was a huge percentage of, of clients for that company that he was working for were borrowing for the look of things. And it really woke me up to the idea about like exactly what you were saying before about big expensive weddings that sometimes they're doing it for show and it's about the aesthetics, not necessarily about going, oh, we're playing an event for an emotional connection celebration. Yeah. Yes. And like, I just feel like rarely do you see that where like even, I mean, even with some grand events, you can still have that really intimate feel to it. Yeah. But yeah, like, I mean, how many times do we really see a wedding where it's it's just like an event that's just produced as opposed to like an intimate setting that's really focused on the happiness of the couple? Which is what I hope everyone listening sort of actually goes, this is what we're doing it for. It's not for just, you know, you're not going to be in Hello Magazine or People Magazine. You're not the Kardashians. Just relax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, so Ginger, we talk about romantic compatibility a lot. And I think we, you know, have touched on this a little bit about financial compatibility and how we find a voice to to have that discussion and also then sit down and make a wedding budget and figure out what we're willing to spend. Can you give us a little bit of advice about combining finances because a wedding is probably the first time for many couples that they actually put in if they're paying for the event themselves or even if they're having some help from family members this is probably the first big financial decision they make together so can you give us some guidance some hints about how we do this without killing each other hopefully you're marrying someone who where you're on the same page financially before Mm. the 
question got popped. I mean, I think that's really key. But I think some of our listeners might be people who they might already be there. And it might mean a really difficult conversation about what expectations are. Mm-hmm. If you haven't already had the conversation about what your collective finances should look like after you get married, do that first because then that lays the foundation for what the wedding um, budget should look like. So if you know that after having the big talk about money, meaning you have the six-month goal, the 12-month goal, the two-year, the five-year goal, and you know that, okay, so this is our plan, and you know that a 100K wedding is not in the budget, then when you do have the conversation about the wedding budget, then hopefully you'll be on the same page. But if you're having the wedding budget conversation before having the money conversation with your partner, it makes it that much more difficult. So it's easier to hash out the issues ahead of time, set your goals, and just know that this is what we're working towards, so that when the wedding discussion comes up, you'll just have in mind, this is a one-day event that's focused on us. We have the rest of our lives together. And so it doesn't make sense for us to spend money in an area that's not focused on our goals. We can spend money to the extent that it keeps us happy and it makes us satisfied with the outcome but and that may mean meeting each other in the middle Mm. it surprises me about how many people uh, i had a listener email uh recently who sort of said that they listened to an episode i did uh, with some wonderful authors who wrote a book called the new i do and it was all about looking about looking at the reality of marriage, I suppose, the reality of modern marriage that, you know, hey, a lot of us, we have this idea of till death to us part, but, you know, 50% of our population, that is not realistic and that's fine. You know, things don't work out. It's who cares? That's what happens. We move on with our lives. Not who cares, but you know what I mean? It's reality. One of the points that they brought up in in the conversation in in our interview was the fact that a lot of people enter into relationships don't have the should we have kids discussion until after they're married and then they go actually I'm not that keen or I want to have five children and the other one says I only have one child so it's interesting when you say about having financial discussions as well it seems that some people go into relationships with the sort of guard up uh, without having to make these big decisions and have these perhaps uncomfortable conversations, but also being honest because you are committing to have a life together without having these huge topics being addressed. It's, it's, it's a bit strange, but I think it's happening a lot. I totally agree because it's funny you say that because um, I think our dating culture now encourages women to accept what you can accept now mm. And then ask questions later. Yes. So, for instance, never really supposed to ask up front, well, what's the goal of this? Are we just dating just to date? Are we hooking up? Or are we dating because we would like to see whether or not we might be a suitable marriage partner in the future together? We're taught to shut up, just date. And if it happens, it just happens. But so many of us waste our time chasing men that they don't really have that. They don't really have good intentions in the first place. And so that's why we miss those conversations because we're being told, well, don't ask that question now. Well, why wouldn't we ask that question up front? We're not going to waste each other's time if we're not moving towards the same goals. So true. I feel like there's a, a whole element of, um, you know, feminist principles that have been completely ignored, and that is one of them, to say why are we scared to be able to have a conversation and say, well, what, what are we doing here? Why are we in this relationship? If he's going to yeah. run away, well, then he is not the guy for you. 
Exactly. And it's like we're being told, well, you know, just sit there, be quiet, and, you know, don't ask what his goals are. Don't ask whether or not he wants to get married. You know, if you just sit there and just play your role, then, you know, he'll pop the question. And I think it's such erroneous advice because then we have women who sit in these relationships for years. Mm. And they're like, well, where are we going? Personally, personally, I think the where are we going conversation should be had or where where are you going? What are your goals for your romantic life at this stage in your life? That conversation should really be had, I think, within the first five times that you see each other. Three to five, you know, if not, you know, the first or the third conversation. Because I wouldn't want my time wasted, quite frankly. And I think, again, as women, we just sit there and we think, well, you know, I should, you know, that there's that book, um, Why Men Marry Bitches. Mm-hmm. It tells you not to ask too many questions mm. let him be and it's like oh my god that's cool and all because it works for the guy and sure it gets a lot of women to the altar with him but then what you have is these men they get into these marriages and they're like well why am i here did i get married for the right reasons and then the women are like well i'm now finding out that we don't have a meeting of the minds on finances and i don't know whether or not he wants to have kids we haven't even had that conversation yet and I just find that so strange. Like I would, to- whether I was twenty-four or thirty-four, I would need to know whether or not he wants to have kids. I'd want to know whether or not. Oh, well, I think I'd need to know his whole financial picture. Hmm. You know, no judgment, but I just need to know. And some people are not finding out until a few years into the marriage. Yeah, and that's really scary. Like we said before, if if if. if- if shit happens and they can't pay a credit card and then, as you said, someone gets a rap on the door and it's a debt collector and you're like, well, I had no idea. I mean, that is not an ideal situation to be in. And especially, uh, I mean, God, I mean, having that conversation, the husband gets home from work and you come home and say, well, there's a guy that came to my door and asked for money. What the hell have you been doing? <laughs> or you have to show up to court because they're suing you or they're going to get, or they're going ga- to garnish your paycheck. And <sighs> yeah, like that's a really, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I had that happen to me my previous marriage. Wow. And I thought I knew everything about the guy. And here's what happened. I got a letter in the mail. Yeah. And it said it was a really old debt. So, you know, we ended up not having to pay it back. But it was a super old debt that he could have taken care of in the time that we knew each other. And so I just thought to myself, wow, what else don't I know about? You know what I mean? Yeah. So these surprises happen in I mean, I'm not going to say they happen in every marriage, but if you have the kind of marriage where you're not having those really thorough conversations and prepping each other for the future, that's the foundation for the curveballs that life's going to throw you. Because at least you know everything that they're coming into in the marriage, as opposed to, well, we'll just hope we have a conversation about it and it'll be fine. And 60 to 70% divorce rate, we see how well that's going. How do you feel about then uh, a couple comes together and they say, we're going to keep our finances separately? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's funny because when I was younger and I I got married when I was 20, 26. And when I was younger, I would have said, yes, we have to merge everything together because I want to see everything. Mm. 
Now it doesn't matter to me. Now I'm more so I'm okay with having a joint bank account because the next person I marry will need to be responsible enough not to get us enrolled. Well, not to get us in check systems. Check systems here in the States is, um, it's sort of like the credit bureau for checking accounts. If you overdraw a checking account and a bank closes it, you get put on a list and then you can't get another checking account with that bank or with several banks. Um, so that person would really need to understand the ramifications of financial irresponsibility. And so I wouldn't and just check share- your website, really. Just come and spend some time on your website. <laughs> <laughs> just quietly yes. go, hey, guy, do you want to just look at my website? Because that'll explain a lot of shit to you. Exactly. And so... <laughs> If I'm going to marry you, and but see, it goes back to this thing. If I think you're financially, like willfully financially irresponsible, I would not marry you. There's a difference between being willfully careless with money and then, well, you know, they maybe didn't have the necessary tools or guidance to get to where they needed to get in order to be okay financially. I get that part. That's why my blog is here. That's why your that's why your podcast is here to give us the information that we don't already have. So you marry someone and then maybe you find out that they're willfully financially irresponsible. Yeah, that's something that you could have found out beforehand, but you probably just didn't bother to because you were too focused on I need to get to the altar as opposed to should I be going to the altar with this person? And it's hard because a lot of people are uh, ashamed of debt. Obviously, it's not easy to sit there and go, look, I've been really irresponsible or yeah, I was in, I, I mean, I had credit card debt from a past relationship and it sort of just really hung around and burned me yeah. and I got over my head with it all. And then when Rich and I got together, he really bought me a different perspective of how to pay back a debt. And I'm not saying I'm not a floozy or an idiot. You know, I feel like being, and I love that you have been the same saying, you you know, we've got to learn how to do this. And we're not necessarily taught in school about cash. We're taught about maths. We're not really taught about how to look after finances. So as you said, knowledge is power, but I really needed to shift my thinking to actually clear that debt. And the day that there was that credit card was zero, it was like the best feeling ever. It was amazing. Yeah. 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 yeah I agree. I totally agree. So what do you think about, so if, if couples say, look, we're going to keep it separate, we're going to have our own separate checking or savings accounts, and then we'll do a joint account for finance, for bills and all that sort of stuff. Do you think that's a good way to ease yourself into that new relationship? And when I say new, you could be together for five years, 10 years, but in a marriage sort of situation, do you think that's a good way to test the waters and make sure you're on the same page? Here's the thing, though. I would have to ask the couple that has reservations about sharing accounts why they're getting married. Oh, yeah. Because, and, you know, as someone who's been divorced, I can totally understand why. Trust me. But there you really do have to deal with that element of um, mistrust in the relationship because then it'll eat away at the other parts. And so why do you not want to share an account with this person? Are they financially irresponsible? Then why are you getting married? Because that's a huge stumbling block to, to try to overlook and hope that it'll just get better. So yeah, I'm up for sharing accounts. I'm up for having two separate accounts, but then having one joint account that you share to pay the bills and other expenses. As long as it works for you, I'm okay with it. But I think that sometimes, whether just through ignorance or just, you know, willful ignorance, we don't, we're not paying attention to, well, why are we not sharing a checking account, right? What's like, what, what are the other issues here that are going on? Because 
if they're still carrying baggage from the previous relationship, then they're not going to want to do that. And that really just should be addressed because then it'll permeate other parts of your relationship and you don't want that to happen. No way. And like financial baggage, whether it's actual debt or financial baggage is in mistrust or exactly what you were saying that this came back and, and bit your ex in the ass and also affected you as well. I mean, that's hard to shake off and you really do need to develop a new level of um I suppose, communication in new relationships to make sure that that's not going to happen again. Well, yeah. And I think the shame is a huge piece, like the shame and the anxiety of talking about debt. But one of the things I found is that when you, when you can look yourself squarely in the mirror and just say, you know what, I forgive myself and it's time to move on because the shame and the guilt and the anxiety is what keeps us just saying, well, okay, so we're going to, we're going to do something about it. And we never do. And we pull out the spreadsheets, we pull out the budgets and we act as though, you know, it's going to fix everything, but it doesn't, we're not looking at the emotional underpinnings of it. So really beginning to look at the guilt, the shame, and just saying, you know what? F it. Like I have to do something about this. If I'm in debt. Say fuck it. There you go. I'm saying it now. Yeah. Yeah, Like, you know, say like this is like this isn't necessary for me to continue on like yeah. look at the life you'd want to live and ask yourself today is it like if i'm in pain today is it worth it to continue on the way that i am right now or can i look at the life that i want to live and work towards that because it's really just too painful for me to continue doing what i'm doing right now oh i could it's such a good message and i, I really want people to hear that especially if they are in the situation of planning this huge wedding day which as we keep going back to, as much as people don't want to hear it, it's a one-day party. And the idea that, that getting into debt and having that shame or getting up the next morning, I always, one of my things I say is the only hangover you want is a champagne hangover. You don't want to wake up and feel that sort of awful pit in your stomach going, oh my God, we owe 50 grand. Fuck, what are we going to do? Like that's, yeah. that is such a good thing. So if you're listening now and you are in deep financial shit because of a wedding there are ways out but just don't don't get too far into it before you start trying to dig your way out basically yeah exactly tell me about worst case scenarios this, i mean we <laughs> it's not very upbeat but it's also well, good to say what is the worst case scenario you lose a job or something let's awful? just say lose a job or you know if you're a business owner you're going to have fluctuations in income so let's just say that you lose your job or your income's really low for a few months, but you've got that deposit down on the catering hall. You've got that deposit down at the church. You have other vendors that you need to pay because you haven't paid them all yet. It's yeah. about, let's say the wedding's nine months out and you booked it 16 to 18 months out. Now, as you're getting going down the road towards the final, you know, the wedding day, you have to make those payments or you have to, or whatever it is, you call them installments. Let's just say you've agreed to eight payments of X dollars, you lose your job and you can't make those payments. Then what happens at that point? You lose all the money that you've already put in there. So that is just one, that's just one worst case scenario in terms of the wedding. It's not the end of the world, but it's, you're going to lose a lot of money at, at the end of the day. So again, really beginning to ask yourself, what money do we have on hand that we would be able to help pay off, well, pay for a wedding, but it doesn't make sense to mortgage your wedding. I mean, there are a lot of people that do that. They take out these home equity loans, which I think is crazy for oh a wedding. That's um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, but you know, that, that's what they do and they don't realize they're paying back major interest over the course of 30 years. 
just to have that one day. Yeah. I just wanted to finish with, uh, I read a really interesting article today about the idea of this, well, a sort of bullshit figure that comes out every year about how much the average wedding is. And I think av- the term average is sometimes confused with median. And if, if and I'm not a big maths person, so let's not get, I won't get too complicated. But the idea that if you're getting married in the middle of New York, it might cost you 70 grand. And if you're getting married in Idaho, it might cost you 10 grand. This idea that the wedding industry, and this might sound a little bit uh, conspiracy theory of me, but this is just my theory, that they're happy to tout this sort of thirty dollars or $40,000 average spend because it also, in a way, makes people feel like that's what they should be spending. So I, I feel like it's working against us, the wed- people planning weddings, in a way, because you think, oh, well, people usually spend thirty, so that's okay. We'll spend $30,000. What do you think about that? Do you think that's a viable <laughs> – do you think I'm on the right track? <laughs> I think it's I think it's a totally valid point. People do have to remember what my budget says I can spend is probably what I should be spending, not what some survey says. Well, you know, we can spend up to $40,000 because that's what Joe Schmo spent last year. Mm. That's not your financial situation, so that's not going to work for you. Yeah. And and I think that's exactly it. if if just because a magazine says so doesn't mean you have to do it. We're not all lemmings. Exactly. We're not wedding lemmings. Like, Exactly. Just because the bank says you can spend $500,000 on a house doesn't mean that you have to get $500,000 on the yes. house. Oh, say it again, because so <laughs> many people go, oh, but the bank will give it to me. You're like, sure, stop, stop, stop. Don't do it. Don't do it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's always such a pleasure speaking with you. You're just a lady that knows what she's talking about. And I love that you are forthright and frank about money. And I think we should really be getting into that zone of having those sort of attitudes to money in in society and relationships. So thank you so much, Ginger Dean. You're amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I always have fun when I come here. <laughs> oh, please come back again. And, and you know, if you want to go, there are so many fantastic blogs that you uh, present on your website about money and figuring out how to find a balance. I can't recommend it enough. It's www, of course, girlsjustwannahavefuns.com. And uh, you're very active on the social medias. Where do we find you if we want to contact you? Uh, the most immediate is probably Twitter. So yeah. I'm at Ginger Latte on Twitter. So that's at G-I-N-G-E-R-L-A-T-T-E. And then on Instagram, it's the same name, but two R's. So it's G I. And G-E-R-R-L-A-T-T-E um, on Instagram as well. And Facebook, it's just Facebook slash Girls Just Want to Have Funs. Yeah, the Facebook, I, I love, I try and share as much as I can. There's lots of great articles. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Well, thanks for providing great content because it's exactly what I want to get out to my lovely listeners. And if you haven't heard the episode, uh, the previous episode we recorded together, it's number 61 and it's called Manage Your Moolah. And we do go into a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, I was talking to a friend today about about what you do, and I was talking about financial abuse and about that sort of stuff that I don't think is talked about enough. So if if you haven't heard that episode, I do say go back and listen. It's really informative, and also just gets you in the the zone of trying to uh, not get fucked over, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Again, my words, not gingers. That's okay. <laughs> Me and my terrible mouth. Uh, Thank you so much, Ginger. And uh, I wish you planning your uh, future wedding as well. I wish you luck and joy. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Talk to you soon. (laughs) All right. Thanks. 
Save the date wedding podcast. Don't plan your wedding without it. 